So I want to do a little bit of review. We've uh, we've been talking about uh, well, the title to the whole series is "God is Great, God is Good." Then why all this evil? And so we're studying why and how in a world that was created, we believe, by a good and loving God, that we would have evil presence. And we haven't gotten to the evil part yet. We're still establishing firmly the notion that God is great and God is good. And the reason that I'm doing that is because I don't want you to be circumstantial about your faith. This is what happens with some people. Something bad happens to you. Something doesn't work out the way you want it to work out. And, and quite frankly, there are some bad things that have happened to people. There are bad things going on in the world today. But people allow those circumstances to convince them, well, there couldn't be a good God. There couldn't be a loving God. But what I have been trying to do for the last three weeks, and I'll cap it off today, is to clearly demonstrate, apart from circumstances, that there must, in fact, be a good all-powerful God. It absolutely must be the case. And that's going to force us to understand why this good and loving God would permit evil in his world. And we will come to that time. We'll start looking at that next week. But today, I want to uh, cap off this uh, establishment phase, if you will. And this is the first four chapters in a book that I've been writing. Um, so we're going to do a little review, and uh, those of you that are joining us online, you'll you'll see that uh, the the uh, answers to the review will appear at the bottom of your screen, and those of you that are here, you'll see the answers here and hear me say them, and you can write them in your bulletin. So uh, number one, this is very simple: God is or nothing is. You see, the universe came from somewhere, and since nothing cannot accomplish or produce anything, then the universe had to have come from something or someone. And we established very clearly that the most rational answer, and indeed a, an answer that is basic to our understanding, properly basic, as one philosopher put it, is that God, who uh, does not come into existence or go out to existence, created the universe out of his own resources. Without God, there would be nothing, literally nothing, right? So God is or nothing is. Number two, God is great, and that includes his capacity, his capability for self-limitation. If someone will close those back doors, I'm getting blinded by the windshield of a vehicle that is pulling up there, and I'm sure that doesn't look good online either. Um, God is great, and certainly uh, we also clearly indicated that the, the, the fundamental definition of God, according to a medieval scholar by the name of Anselm, is that I'm still getting that glare. That door has got to close. Thank you very much. Um, Anselm said, God is the being than which no greater can be conceived. That's the definition of God. Whatever that being, that entity is, that's God a being than which no greater can be conceived, right? That's God. So um, that's in the definition of God's existence, God's name, the very concept of God. But I wanted to bring across to you the idea that God's capacity, his capability to limit himself also counts toward his greatness. So God created you and you are made in his image. And that in part means that you have a will and you have the ability, if you choose, 
to align with and agree with God, or you have the ability to disagree with God. And we're getting right at the answer to the question why there's evil in the world. You have a will, and you can do what God doesn't want you to do. But if you had free will and God simply made you do what he wanted you to do, then your will wouldn't be free after all, would it? It would just be an illusion. You have free will. God is capable of limiting himself, and he demonstrates that in that he created creatures in his image with free will whom he allows <laughs> to <laughs> open the door and close the door every five seconds so that that glares on my face. <laughs> Oh, my goodness, you're killing me right now. <laughs> you never know how many times people go in and out that door until there's a glare. Somebody parked their truck right there, and the sun is going here and right here. And as soon as I said I closed the doors, everybody went in and out the door. Okay, see? See how you all are? You just, I say don't do it. Oh, well, let's just get up, and we got to go out the door 55 more times because Pastor said not to. I love you. Here it comes. Yep. All right. <laughs> but God is able to limit himself and not yell at his creatures for opening the door. God also limits himself in that he, in the only begotten son, became one of us and then went to the cross and died for our sins, for that which we have done destructively with our free will, for sin. That's God demonstrating that he is perfectly capable of self-limitation. And I think that that is going to prove to be central to my answer to this question. Why is there evil in the world? God is capable of limiting himself. And uh, Jesus, through the incarnation, shows that God can actually walk alongside us, become one of us, right? So number two, God is great, and that includes his capacity for self-limitation. That's the answer there. Number three, God proved this by creating people with free will. I said it, but I want you to be able to fill it in, right? And by becoming human in Christ. So I said all those things, but now you can fill them in in your outline. And number four, um, good, this is what we talked about last week, good is defined by God's nature, so if there is no God, there is no objective good. There's just what you feel versus what I feel. My truth versus your truth, right? And what is good for me may not be good for you. So we have this, and this is, by the way, not a call to, uh, to be angry or political, but a call to prayer for our country and for the country of Afghanistan. Um, we have an example of this in Afghanistan right now. A group of people called the Taliban who once harbored Al-Qaeda, Al-Qaeda and the terrorists who bombed our country 20 years ago. Uh, the Twin Towers went down, horrific things happened, and apparently we've simply forgotten about that. And so now we've left 15,000 Americans behind without any protection, and we've left millions of dollars in equipment behind so that we have effectively equipped the most uh, powerful and dangerous terrorist network in the world. Because why? People just decided they wanted to do this. Not based on wisdom, not based on prayer. Uh, there is a political agenda that's there, this side, that side, the other side, but it very clearly indicates that people have free will. But beyond that, Al-Qaeda 
believed what they were doing was right. They thought bombing the Twin Towers with uh, our own airplanes and killing 5,000 people was a good idea. They thought it was right. The Taliban believe they are right. They're following Sharia law. They think that's good. And hopefully you don't think that's good. But see, if all we're doing is just pushing back and forth based on our own personal agenda, then we're showing that good is just how you feel or how your tribe feels, what is beneficial to you versus uh, you know somebody else. Well, as long as it's beneficial to me, it doesn't matter what it is for someone else. If we're going to have objective good, that is a good that does not change. The Taliban says it's good. Al-Qaeda says it's good. America says it's good. China says it's good. Uh, North Korea says it's good. If we're going to have a good out there in front of us that we can all look at and say is good, then that has to be objective. And the only way, the only way that's going to be is if God is good. And that flows from his nature. So you see, what we've demonstrated is that little prayer that we teach kids. God is great. God is good. Now we thank him. And in this case, for our food is really quite instructive. God is great, and God is good. Good is defined by God, and God is a being than which no greater can be conceived, so God is great. So no matter what I think or how I feel, that's the way it is. There are folks that say, well, you know, I just don't understand how Jesus can be the only way. And I answer with, you know, a rather obvious statement. He's the only way because he's the only way. See, we have this idea that we just have all these choices. It's sort of like a smorgasbord, but it's not that way with God. You don't go to the buffet and pick this and that and the other thing. This is the way God is. It's essential to his nature. It's like saying, well, I don't like air. I wish I was a fish and I, you know, I could swim underwater and breathe water, but that's not the way it is. You can't choose that. You can learn to scuba dive and you could go underwater for a while, but that's not where you live. In fact, if you go underwater too deep and you come up too fast, you get bubbles in your blood and you, you die, right? That's not where we were made to be. People climb Mount Everest, right? I, I have a secret ambition to climb Mount Everest. I just think it would be so cool, but it's so hard. And apparently you have to come up with about 100,000 plus dollars even if you're in shape to climb Mount Everest, right? And you've got to take a long time. Now, believe it or not, an old guy like me can get in shape to climb Mount Everest. It's, it is possible, okay? Um, but you can't live up there, no matter what you want to do. So people that climb Mount Everest that are not Sherpas, that is the guides that live there, and they climb Mount Everest without any oxygen. It's amazing. There's less and less oxygen the higher you go. So at the top, top of Everest, there's virtually no oxygen. So you're breathing oxygen about the last two thirds of the way up Everest, definitely the last third of the way up Everest. You get at the top. Do you know how long they spend at the top after they you know, literally spent a lifetime trying to get to the place where they can climb the mountain and pay the bill and whatever? Maybe 10 minutes, maybe, and then back down. Because you can't live at the top of a mountain. Well, why can't I live at the top of a mountain? Because you can't live at the top of a mountain. Because you're not made that way. Jesus is the only way because Jesus is the only way. God is because God is. Right? Now, this is rational and these sound all like tautologies, but I need us to firmly establish this no matter what your circumstances are. 
right? We can point to the pandemic and the protests and personal problems in our lives and say, I just can't believe that there's a good God. But if there's no good God, there's no good. If there's no God, there's nothing. So we need to firmly establish that and wrestle with these other issues by wrestling with God like Jacob did. Amen? Amen. All right. And number five in the review, apart from God, there's no objective basis for good. That's what we just went over, but I needed to put it in there uh, for you guys uh, for the review. So now let's move on today to today. God created everything good or everything with a good purpose. Um, Genesis chapter one ends with this statement, and God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Not just good, it was very good. Well, today, we spend much of our time staring at screens, don't we? I think I jerked my phone out so that I could have my phone here. We spend most of our time staring at screens and staring at and marveling at our own magnificence, the things that we have created. In fact, was sitting at the barbecue joint up the street here the other night. And uh, usually there's not a lot of tables there. So unless my back is hurting and there's not a hundred people, I usually just sit at the bar and I can just eat right there. And you know, people will come and sit next to you when you're, you're seated at the bar. But this person didn't sit next to me. There was an inebriated lady. Do you know what it means to be inebriated? <laughs> so I was sitting near where the cashier is over here and I was staring at my phone. I was looking, I was scrolling through Instagram, all right? And uh, this lady, who I don't know, but apparently knows me, came up to me and said, you know, you stare too much at your phone. <laughs> and I don't even think I, I made that face. I just turned to her and I said, huh? He said, all you ever do is just look at your phone. No, I didn't say, ma'am, you're drunk. Please move away from me which is how I felt. And she said, what are you looking at? I said, I don't know, just Instagram. I mean, I showed her what I was looking at. You sit here and stare at your phone all the time. I said, ma'am, have we ever met? Because I don't think I remember your name. Well, you just think about it for a while and then maybe you'll know. <laughs> so, I, you know, I posted that. So I'm wondering, is it vino veritas or just too much vino, right? So vino veritas, meaning wine is truth, and maybe she was speaking a truth. The reality is if she's seen me over there, I usually go over there to just get a break, okay? I'm here all the time. I'm working on the computer. I'm doing the stuff here. When I go over there, I just go, and sometimes I talk to people, and sometimes I don't, right? So if there's nobody, I don't go bugging people. If there's nobody there to talk to, then yeah, I'm on my phone. Probably some of you are too. But we stare so much at our phones. We spend so much time on screens, right? Um, yeah, we're marveling at our own magnificence. We're inveterate humanists. What does that mean? Man is the measure of all things. Humans are the measure of all things. So is it any wonder that atheism is on the rise? Because all we're doing is staring at things that we've created, not believing that there is a creator of us. For thousands of years, though, humans stared at the stars and they were convinced that heaven and earth was created by God, or in some cases, the gods. But we've removed ourselves from the beauty and the grandeur of nature and surrounded ourselves with human artifices. I would encourage you 
And that's how I'm going to start and end this sermon. I would encourage you to go outside and spend some time in nature. Amen. Even sometimes when we go outside, we enjoy playing sports and we enjoy swimming in swimming pools and all that. But it's really not the same. It's better than sitting inside and staring at a screen. But it's not the same as getting alone in nature, uh, you know, getting alone in the trees, getting alone with the stars. We've removed ourselves from that beauty. We've surrounded ourselves with human uh, artifice. And so what I would encourage you to do is leave your mobile device behind, turn off your technology, take off your headphones. Yes, I said, take off your headphones and immerse yourself in nature. See, the thing is, you might say, well, I'll get out in nature, but I'm going to I got to have my soundtrack. You're still not getting it. It's an immersive experience, right? You go out there and you just allow the creation to impact you, to affect you, immerse yourself in nature by taking a walk in the forest or by the lake. Um, you, you can get that nearby. Uh, you know, ask our, uh, ask our bass player up here, Elijah, if you wanna know where you can go to do some running in the trees. He does trail running all the time. But get away from the city lights and stare at the awe-inspiring night sky, right? Um, the, the scripture in Psalm 19.1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God, the sky displays his handiwork. And I love this, uh, this stanza from a poem by Elizabeth Barrett Browning. She said, earth's crammed with heaven and every common bush afire with God, but only he, who see, only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit around and pluck blackberries. Well, God speaks through his creation. The question is, are you paying attention? Right, and that's, uh, that's number one in your outline there. Um, there is order and complexity evident everywhere from the smallest wildflowers to the Grand Tetons, from moss growing on the slick rocks of Slide Rock in Sedona, Arizona, to the giant blue whales swimming in the Pacific Ocean. Did you know the blue whale is the largest creature that has ever existed? Am I right? Yes. It is the largest creature that has ever existed and it's swimming around in the pacific ocean right now that's awesome it's bigger than any dinosaur or any dinosaur ever was and it's still swimming around in the ocean that's phenomenal i think it's awesome Design is evident everywhere, from the human eye to the giraffe's neck, from your immune system to the bacterial and viral infections that, that it is marshaled to fight. Design evinces a designer. That means design points to a designer. The universe was created, and the creator had a purpose in mind when he made it. You know what the purpose was? Us, people. Human beings are seen as the crown of God's creation in the Genesis account. We're the only creatures made in God's own image. Here it is from John, Genesis 27. I allude to it all the time. I, I say a phrase from this all the time. But God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. He created us in his own image. Well, it was once believed that Earth was the center of the cosmos until scientists observed that there is no center to the universe, nor are there any edges. In fact, Earth's not even the center of the Milky Way galaxy or even our own solar system. So Copernicus is usually credited with the discovery that we occupy a heliocentric solar system. And this led scientists to posit the so-called Copernican principle. Some call it the principle of mediocrity. Earth is not special. 
It is an unremarkable planet revolving around a small star at the edge of one galaxy among some 200 billion estimated to exist in the universe. Looking at things from that perspective, uh, that could certainly persuade someone to regard us as insignificant creatures. Couple that with the conclusion of evolution, life appeared spontaneously and evolved randomly over millions of years to finally result in human beings. And you may well feel like the teacher in the Bible's book of Ecclesiastes who said, absolute futility, says the teacher. Everything is futile. Well, the teacher believed in the existence of God, but he doesn't appear to have had any relationship with the creator other than a distant reverence and a wise willingness to keep his commands. However, the principle of mediocrity is not hard science. And by the way, that's your number two. The Copernican principle is also called the principle of mediocrity. The principle of mediocrity is not hard science, but a matter of perspective, which betrays the bias and underlying assumptions uh, of the uh, scientist who uh, proposes it, like naturalism and atheism. There is design evident in the universe. It is finely tuned, astonishingly so. Well, what is fine-tuning, and why does that matter so much? Depending upon how it is evaluated and which cosmologist is doing the calculation, there are as many as 93 fine-tuning parameters essential for our complex life-sustaining planet to have come about. Let us look at two of those parameters, right? Uh, number one, and by the way, number three is the fine-tuning of the universe points to intelligent, intelligence and design. That's number three. Among these 93 fine-tuning parameters, let's look at number one, one you're very familiar with, and that is gravity. First, I want to give credit to Dr. Hugh Ross, uh, he is an astronomer, for the following information. The gravitational constant represents the relative strength of gravity. If the, if the constant moved one direction, then gravity would be stronger. And if it moved in the other direction, gravity would be weaker. If gravity were even slightly stronger, matter would clump together too tightly and stars would be too hot and burn out too quickly. If gravity were weaker, matter would not clump together enough and stars would be far too cool. The result of this would be a lack of heavy elements necessary to form planets since those elements come from the furnace of stars. To understand how delicate the fine-tuning of the gravitational constant is, let's look at an example given by Lee Strobel in his film, uh, Case for a Creator, based upon the same book. Strobel asks us to imagine a ruler marked with one-inch increments, which is then stretched all the way across the known universe. Now that's mind-boggling, isn't it? So a ruler, normally 12 inches, right? Imagine that ruler marked with one-inch increments stretched across the entire known universe, right? You got that in your mind? If you moved the gravitational constant one inch one way or one inch the other way, our planet and you would not exist. It is extremely finely tuned. Well, that's only one fine tuning parameter of 93 essential for us to exist. But let's look at one more. Actually, there's two, they, they interact. The size of the universe. At the beginning of this chapter, I, I encourage you to get away from the city and to look up the stars in the sky. And it is a magnificent sight, but it could also make you feel pretty insignificant. Have you ever wondered why the universe is so big? That used to bother me. 
right? You just kind of feel lonely. It's just everything is just so big. It's so much grander than us. So, uh, yeah, there is a parameter that is very important here. Uh, it actually involves two parameters. One is the total mass of the universe. That's the total amount of stuff in the universe. And then number two is the total amount of empty space in the universe. Both of these must be fine-tuned with an infinitesimal precision in order for complex intelligent life to exist anywhere. Once again, I'm gonna credit Dr. Hugh Ross for the following information. The mass of the universe is so critical that if at the beginning there had even been the mass of one dime added or subtracted from it, the balance of the observable universe would have been thrown off and no physical life would now be possible. That's almost difficult to believe. One thin dime. If that amount of matter had been added or subtracted, and this is science, this isn't the Bible, this is science, this is true, regardless of whether you agree with my conclusion that there must be a God or not. If you remove the amount of mass contained in one thin dime, and dimes are pretty light. I should have brought one here and flipped it around. Right? If you got one in your pocket, you can take it out. And you probably don't. Nobody carries change anymore, do they? But it's a very, very light object. But if you were to add or subtract that amount of mass to the initial total mass of the universe at the Big Bang, you wouldn't be sitting here listening to me talk right now there would be no complex life in the universe possible at all. That's almost difficult to believe. Well, that's the total amount of mass, the total amount of stuff. The other side is, have you ever wondered why there's so much space in space? Why is the universe so vast and so spread out? Well, since the amount of matter in the universe cannot be more or less than it is, we turn to another fine-tuning parameter, the rate of cosmic expansion. The universe has been expanding since the Big Bang event, and this is what caused them to propose, going back to Einstein, the Big Bang, because you can observe the expansion of the universe. The universe has been expanding since the Big Bang event, and that expansion has had to be precise, has has to be precise for life to exist. In fact, the rate of expansion cannot differ by one part in 10 to the 60th power. Math people, that's a 10 with 60 zeros. Am I correct? Is that a big number? Yeah, that's a big number. Um, in fact, that's about the number of atoms in our galaxy, 10 to the 60th. So that would be like saying, if one atom could be picked out of all of the atoms in our galaxy. That's the number we're talking about. One in all of those atoms. That's a lot, right? So if the rate of expansion slowed by even that incomprehensibly small fraction, there would be less space and the universe would have collapsed back on itself before stars formed, before stars even formed. Planets form after and as a result of stars. People come last. So you wouldn't be grappling with the difficult questions we're asking if the rate of cosmic expansion were any different than it is. Gravity is perfect. The amount of matter is perfect. The amount of space in the universe is perfect. There are 90 more parameters. When you look at this, it definitely seems like there's intelligence and power behind the existence of the universe. Yeah. Astrophysicist George Greenstein says, as we survey all the evidence the thought insistently arises that some supernatural agency 
or rather agency, he puts a capital A, must be involved. Is it possible that suddenly, without intending to, we have stumbled upon scientific proof for the existence of a supreme being? Was it God who stepped in and so providentially crafted the cosmos for our benefit? Well, finally, let's turn to our own little insignificant planet. According to scientists who subscribe to the Copernican principle of mediocrity, there are probably millions of planets like ours and the universe must be teeming with life. The underlying assumption of these scientists is that the universe and life has come about as the result of random natural and material processes. Science doesn't look to God because science is a method of discovering how the natural world works. It is a grave error to presume that this means there is nothing beyond the natural world. In fact, as we are observing, the existence and order of the cosmos points to a creator beyond the material universe who powerfully brought it into existence and crafted it carefully. In the book, Privileged Planet, and I would encourage you to get a hold of this book. The book is called Privileged Planet, and it is written by Guillermo Gonzalez. Uh, he's one of the two authors. Uh, Gonzalez, who is an astrobiologist, lists multiple factors necessary for a planet in our universe to support complex life. So now we're, we're focusing in just our planet. So what is necessary for a planet to be insignificant like ours? It must have liquid water, be terrestrial, that is have land, have the proper ratio of liquid water and continents, have carbon, have an oxygen-rich atmosphere, have a magnetic field, plate tectonics, must be orbiting a main sequence G2 dwarf star. Yep, that's our little insignificant sun. Have a moderate rate of rotation. Be protected by giant gas planets. What are the two giant gas planets? Saturn and Jupiter. That's right. We have to have them. They're not just sitting out there. They have to be there. That's awesome, I think. It must be within a galactic habitable zone. Why aren't we at the center of our galaxy? Because if we were at the center of our galaxy, we couldn't live. We have to be out here on the edge of our galaxy, or we couldn't be in a planet capable of sustaining life, much less intelligent life. And by the way, because of where we are out on the edge of the Milky Way galaxy, it also permits us to look deep into the universe and see other galaxies and other stars. You think that just happened? It's just an accident? I don't think so right? Uh, so uh, must be within a galactic habitable zone, must be in a circumstellar habitable zone. That means it needs to be the third planet from the sun. That's what that means, right? If we're the fourth planet from the sun or the second planet from the sun, then we can't exist. Um, it must be orbited by a large moon. Yay, moon. We have to have our moon. Did you know that? Did you see the full moon this morning? And did you look out there and see it? It was beautiful. So after reading through those, if you did, well, I did for you. I don't know if you're still paying attention. So what do you think the likelihood would be for the existence of other complex life-supporting planets like our unremarkable Earth? Gonzalez's conclusion is not very likely at all. Uh, Jay Richards is the co-author of this book, and this is a quote from that book. Given the recent trends in planetary sciences, perhaps we should begin to view Earth and its immediate surroundings not as a carbon copy of systems bound to arise whenever stars and wherever stars and planets form, but as a finely tuned interdependent system that together nurtures a strange little oasis. Human thinking has been wrong. 
It doesn't matter where our planet stands in relation to a physical center. In a universe like ours, that is relative, that is relative and irrelevant. What is relevant is the why of our existence. Science cannot answer that question. In fact, some scientists skew it altogether. Richard Dawkins calls why a stupid question. Yet it is the fundamental question of every searching mind. Why? Do you ever ask why? That's the question we're trying to answer really in this whole study. Why is there evil if there's a good and loving God? We, answer that. we ask that question a lot. And the answer is not, oh, that's a dumb question, okay? Um, listen to this from uh, Agros and Stansu in their book, The New Story of Science. And this is quoted in Case for a Creator. Though man is not the physical center of the universe, he appears to be at the center of its purpose. Think about that again. Though man is not at the physical center, though humans are not at the physical center of the universe, that's irrelevant. He appears, we appear, she appears to be at the center of its purpose. And I, uh, I love this quote once again from uh, Privileged Planet. And yet, as we stand gazing at the heavens beyond our little oasis, we gaze not into a meaningless abyss, but into a wondrous arena, a universe so skillfully crafted for life and discovery that it seems to whisper of an extraterrestrial intelligence, immeasurably more vast, more ancient, and more magnificent than anything we've been willing to expect or imagine. Amen. Why? is a question for which only God can provide a satisfactory answer. But he has given us the curiosity and capability to seek. And when we seek God, we will find him if we search for him with all of our hearts. God's first book is the book of creation. It was written even before the Bible. It is incomplete as a source for revealing the creator's personality. However, the cosmos clearly points to the existence of a supernatural powerful intelligence who brought it all into existence. So I would encourage you to go out and read the book of creation every single day. Amen? Amen. So that's called by some scientists or scientists, theologians, general revelation, right? When we look at the creation. But the specific revelation is found in the scripture. And the scripture says, in the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Listen, all things were made by Him. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Who's the Word? Skip down to verse 14. That's John 1, 1 through 5. Verse 14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the, uh, of the Father, full of grace and truth. That's Jesus. He's the agent of creation. If you want to get to know God personally, you've got to meet his son, Jesus. Is that the only way? It's the only way because it's the only way. He's the only begotten son of God. So I would encourage you today to get to know this creator of the universe. Go out, as I said earlier, and enjoy nature. But before you leave this room, establish a relationship with Jesus by opening your heart and inviting him to come inside. Ask him to be your Lord, your King, 
ask him to take control of your life, to, as he, as he scattered the chaos and created order in the initial universe, he can do so in your life as well. Your life might be chaotic right now. You might not understand what's going on. You might not understand why it's going on. But I can tell you that Jesus can come in and establish order in your life if you will call him who he is and what he is, and that is Lord. Can you bow your head and close your eyes for just a moment? If you'd like to establish or reestablish a relationship with Jesus and you just don't know what to say or what to do, I know I told you to pray, but maybe you're just kind of sitting there with a blank mind. Here's a prayer you can pray. Take these words and if you understand and you agree and you believe, then make these words the words of your prayer. Let's pray together. Say, Dear Jesus, I believe in you. You are the Son of God. You came to earth. You became one of us. You lived a perfect life. I am not perfect. I fail. I sin. I need a Savior. You came to be the Savior, the only Savior. And you died on the cross to prove it. And then you rose from the, get, the dead to seal it. I open my heart. I invite you to come inside. Take control of my life. Jesus Christ, you are Lord. In your name I pray. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, I would really like to know that. And your next step is to make that decision public. Uh, you might choose uh, some friends and tell them, hey, you know, I just chose to give my life to Jesus today. If you're here, uh, there's a f more formal way you can do it. Uh, or if you're watching online, um, you can uh, open up our website, lifewellchurch.com, click the feedback tab, and then just where it says decision made today, question mark, just say, yep, that's exactly what I did. I invited Christ to come into my heart. I chose to follow Jesus, however you want to term it. If you're in the room here and you're not so techno savvy or you'd rather do it another way, there are cards that are on a podium as you go out the door on your left side. Take one of those little feedback cards, fill it out, and on the right side of the door, there's a box with a cross-shaped slot. You can just drop it in that box, which is also where you can drop an offering later if you'd like to. We're gonna sing one more song, and I hope that you will continue to pay attention to the Lord as he seeks to lead you.